Hey guys, welcome to Always Bet on Black, the podcast with African-American leaders. I'm Paula Glover. Today, we'll be talking to Rick Thigpen, Senior Vice President of Corporate Citizenship at PSCG. We're going to be talking politics and what it means to stay in your place. I hope you enjoy this episode with Rick. How about that? Welcome, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paula. So um, I introduced you that way because I'm absolutely interested in politics. And I've always been fascinated by you um, because you've actually worked in politics. But also when I really started kind of getting acclimated to the folks in DC, I'm interested, I've been really fascinated, interested by how many people have crossed your path, how many people you've mentored who've ended up in campaigns and really working in politics in all kinds of ways. Um, and so that's for me, pretty unique. I don't know many people who do that kind of work um, who are, or who can point to so many people who have huge presences presences that you have influenced in some way. So, I've just been around a long time now, I think. Well, I wasn't going to say you're an old geezer, but let's leave it with what I have, please. Um, but let's start kind of from the beginning. And so I know you live in New Jersey now. Are you originally from the great state of New Jersey? I am originally a native of East Orange, New Jersey, yes. Now oh, growing yeah. up, so I spent my years before I attended public school in East Orange and a couple of years in Newark. I spent my elementary school years in St. Louis, Missouri, where I picked up my love for the St. Louis baseball Cardinals. And then middle school and high school in Wilmington, Delaware, where I met a brand new Senator named Joe Biden when I was on the student council in high school. Really? And so were you an officer on the student council or were you just a member of the student council? Well, excuse me, there weren't that many. I was a member of the student council. I was, you know, I went like, were you student council president or were you like a class rep type of thing? Well, there were separate. There was a student council and I was in student council and there were people who ran for class officers. That was a separate slate. So I yes. remember the student council. Yeah, so it was very interesting. And, and uh, in fact, I am a 1977 graduate from high school. I met Joe Biden. He was elected in Delaware in 1972. In 1974, I first met him. He's a young man. He seemed old at the time. But the year after I graduated from high school, 1978, court-ordered desegregation started in my county, Newcastle County in Delaware. So my senior year in high school, where I was one of four African-Americans, I think out of 450 in my class, the whole world was being turned over by the promise or threat, depending on your perspective of desegregation coming the following year. And they only, that was in 1978, yes, which was not that long ago. And the resistance was not violent, but it was complete. The people what did that not mean? want it. They rejected it. It was unacceptable. It wasn't like in Boston where there were big crowds and people got ugly and they were threatening and menacing, but it was, it was not acceptable at all in suburban Wilmington, Delaware for that, for that to happen. Yeah. Now that's interesting. So what do you remember about that, kind of that first year of desegregated schools? So I don't know. I was gone. I graduated gone. Year before it happened. I remember moving to Wilmington in 1972 and meeting people uh, in Newcastle County who had never met a person of color before. They wanted to touch my hair and see what it was felt like. And they, it was, you know, lots of other things that go with that. It was quite an adjustment to be around it, to be a young person in a world where being black was so foreign, alien, unique, and they'd never met one before. And it, well, lots of baggage went with that. Yeah, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Is there anything that you would take from that experience that has kind of helped you navigate 
the rest of life where you certainly been in situations where you've been one of few, if not one, if not the only. Well, it's funny. Some people wonder today if I've learned any lessons from my past, but there's no question that familiarity with the majority community and majority culture has been a part of my being able to navigate in, in, in some different worlds. And it certainly, it certainly contributed to my success. And I look back at it now as a parent because there's no question I, I could say I turned out okay, but that's not an experience I'm looking to replicate for my own children. Yeah. I did it to some degree with my oldest in terms of private school, but it was not the same. So I, I learned some of the benefits of it, of, of exposure, opportunity, education, but I've also learned some of the shortcomings in that your self-esteem is a very important part of your success and your self-esteem and your belief and knowledge of your own people and your own heritage are very important things. And there's a lot of people who like you to forget those things because they think that we have a better model for your success to follow than the one in your bloodline, so to speak. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a hot potato. But um, I also learned there's a parent watching the Disney Channel. Hmm. There is a culture in America. Uh, a lot of people believe that white is right, that European descent is the best, and that either you are that or you need to mimic that in order to be the best. And that success, quality, and talent only comes in one type of package. And being taught that as a young person can teach you to maybe not like yourself or to doubt yourself or to try to be something you're not, to conform to a model of which you cannot conform. Because the other thing I did learn aside from that model was you are not one of us. Yes. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. I had that experience in high school. I think I was one of six in a school of 1200. And I had that experience where everybody was your friend until all of a sudden it seemed like they weren't, right? That they wanted you to feel like you were part of them until there were those points in time when it was very clear that you actually were not. That they can go through and suddenly you can't go through that with them, yes. Yeah. But it is a lesson in America and insight into some parts of the soul of our country that we also witness in this. Absolutely. Do you think um, in this time, particularly in 2020, that as an African-American, as a black man, we are you're more aware of kind of those those situations than you would have been. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we have Files TV at my house and they when it's not on, they kind of highlight different shows that you can do on, you know, you can buy or whatever. And I remember sitting, watching this thing scroll through once. And I said to my husband, I said, wow. I said, we are really programmed to believe that white people are the only people on the face of the earth, because if they highlighted six shows, there might've been three people of color. Yes. Of color, not necessarily just black. And everybody else was white. And I was like, wow. I don't know that I ever recognized before that how much of media is really only representing one group of people and how many of us are so excluded in, in media. And it, I just came to that realization. So I'm wondering, do you think for you, has it, there been a heightened awareness or has it always been a heightened awareness for you? Yes. Well, I'm not sure about always, but it definitely taught me and it, college taught me the same thing. And one of the reasons I've developed my love of history is that I came to learn that the truth is so much more powerful than the fiction that, that, you know, that I was being taught. That in fact, uh, 
I have a lot to be proud of, both in American history and global history as the descendant of Africans, mm -hmm. that in fact, the world is not the place that they were taught you in school. And then in fact, you have a history of being bra proud, brave, and strong people. And that it's up to you to live up to that history. That's not what they taught me in school. They taught me that I needed to be ashamed of my past, that in fact, my past was full of misery and failure and that we were lifted up by America. And that is just simply not true. And living, a, it, 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 you know, it's never good to live a lie, but living a lie that puts you in a second position is even worse. And a lie that undermines your self-confidence and your feeling of worth, it's even worse. And and the feeling that you are really not one of the real in crowd in America sticks with pretty much all of us. Everybody gets that message one way or another. We all react to it differently. Yeah. It's a powerful message. And I'll add one more piece to it. You know, I'm a traveler, I'm a geography buff, and I've had a chance to see, not nearly enough, but I have a chance to see some parts of the world. And every place that Europeans have been, and the history of colonialism is global, you see this same issue of a what the French called an aristocracy of skin, this kind of feeling yeah. and culture that white skin is something special, that having it is a superpower that imbues you with certain rights and privileges, right? And you see it all across the world. And it is, it's unfortunate, certainly if you're not white, to experience it. And it's, uh, you know, and now as a parent, it's the most significant thing in the world. My daughter's self-esteem, there are a few things that matter more to me. And our culture is purposefully undermining that. And it is, it's not something I'd, I'd, I'd like to support would be the nicest way to put that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree with, with you more. So you, you leave Newcastle County, Delaware. I'm a proud UD graduate. Yes. So I'm familiar with Newcastle County. Huh? And my high school class went to the University of Delaware. I believe it everybody went to university of delaware except everybody that. went to the university of delaware and yeah that's how it was when i was there yeah. too right in newark newark and don't you dare call it newark but yeah, don't be confused. You, do yeah. not be confused we're in newark yeah. um and then you make your way to brown i went to brown university why brown i had an older brother who went to brown I can look back at this. So a couple of things. One is I had parents with a driving mentality, right? I thinking big and shooting high was not that extraordinary. My two older brothers are both successful students ahead of me. So the pressure was on, you know, as number three arrives at the plate, first two hit a home run, Rick, can you hit? <laughs> so it's funny. So my old, so my brother who's ahead of me, the middle brother went to Brown and I have a chance to visit him at school. And it was it was an amazing experience, you know, to be a high school kid, really first time on a college campus. So I really fell in love with it. And then, so I applied to colleges, all thinking big. And um, at the end of the day, I chose Brown. It was really prestigious. It was in a big city, if you call Pro you know, I was Providence. From, compared to Wilmington, it fit. Oh, yeah. Big city. And uh, it would be a fabulous experience. I had a brother there. And so I was, it, was, it was exciting. You know, I felt like I was successful. Okay. And then from Brown, you go to Columbia Law School. Well, yeah, not quite a direct line. So Brown University was its own journey. I majored in political science, but my real training in politics began at Brown first in studying 
politics, but also being a community organizer. I worked for a group that was a organizer of people for welfare and unemployment rights. And it took me on the streets of Providence being a community organizer for over a year of my college career. And the education was in, invaluable and, and how much it taught me about politics that I built on later was invaluable. So that was in, incredibly valuable. So then I graduated from college, came home, and my father was on a mission, which I can now look back at. He was distant cousins, close friends with a politician named Donald Payne, who was committed to becoming the first African-American in the history of New Jersey to be elected to the Congress. And they were on the job. And so I come home, you know, I've been interested in politics, but my father really got me in. My first job, I was an advanced man on a Senate campaign, a statewide Senate campaign, which was a fascinating experience. And I learned quite a bit about it. Then the second job was working for Donald Payne, who was, who in 1982 became the South Ward Councilman in the city of Newark. And he was also the South Ward Democratic Chairman in Newark. And so I got my PhD in municipal politics in Newark City Hall to go along with really uh, uh, working with politics with the South Ward Democratic Chairman competing for more inside of Essex County. And I learned just how tribal my county is and just how I learned a lot about politics from Donald Payne. You're gonna hear that name several times in this conversation. But I, I learned a lot about the tough game of politics. I wanna go back. So you, cause you said you were at Brown now and you decide and you become a community organizer. And I might suggest that prior to Barack Obama, very few of us would even know what, have heard that term community organizer. So how do you get into becoming a community organizer? Because that, that's a thing. It's very interesting. So first thing, I had this little thing for politics, right? I went to volunteer on the, on the Ted Kennedy for president campaign in New Hampshire. I was the only person I knew in college who, who registered to vote in 1980 and actually voted in that election you know, in Providence, Rhode Island. So I had this little thing for politics going, right? And I was at some meeting. I was also on the South African, oh, South African Steering Committee, because getting my university to divest from investments in South Africa was the big deal. So I worked on that committee, which involved me with people who were involved in all types of politics, many of it far beyond the spectrum of party politics in America. And in, in some of these meetings in a place I was at, somebody talked about being a community organizer and how, and how excited it sounded. And I decided to try something new. So I was in the right place at the right time. I heard about an opportunity and I became a volunteer and it really took for me. I ended up getting a summer job, you know, working as a community organizer for, for the summer between my senior and I'm sorry, my junior and senior year in college. And it was just a fabulous experience and taking you off campus into the community of Providence, which was quite interesting place. You know, it, it was a very small city with big city problems mm -hmm. run by a mayor who is now famous named Buddy Cianci, who, uh, is famous because he served for a long time, got himself in a little trouble and that he kidnapped his ex-wife's boyfriend and gave him the business using one of his off-duty off police officers, you know, a little physical abuse, you know. You know That's the business. Yeah, he gave him the business, but he, you know, he got himself in trouble, you know, but he still got himself, you know, reelected and then he got himself in some other trouble and he was able to survive that. He was, so he, so he, he's kind of a well-known name and, and the Italian, and what I learned from Essex County later, I now saw in Providence, except I just didn't know it, which was the Italians ran Providence. It was a segregated city. 
And that, you know, there was a place called Federal Hill where everybody was, you know, don't go to Federal Hill, don't get there, don't be there at night, you know, be careful. And there were, you know, several communities of African-Americans. So Providence was a great experience for me and to get a chance to be a community organizer, I really took to it because it had me involved in my community. My father had gotten himself to be somewhat successful. So when we moved to Wilmington, we were in the suburbs. So it was almost like being reacquainted with with urban America again for me. And I really wanted the education. I can look back at it by my behavior. So it was a good education. It was a good learning experience. And like was gonna happen for me, being out and about with people, doing events, it turned out to be my thing. That's a strange thing to have, but it turned out to be my thing. No, well, that's a good thing. So you do the community organizing and yeah. then you decide after this experience, you decide you're gonna go to law school. Well, no. correct. So no, working in North City Hall taught me that. Taught you that? $15,000 a year. I started How much did you say? $13,000 a year? $14,000 a year. So I was and making what that. year was this? This was 1982. All right. I was not getting rich, right? But I saw the lawyers in the law department, I started making friends with them. So between the lawyers in the law department, watching them do their work, watching real estate lawyers come into City Hall, getting respect and making money, and of course, my father on me about what my future is going to be made me say, you know what, I, I think I'd like being a lawyer. You know, I like politics. I like policy work. And I, in my mind, I was going to become a real estate lawyer. Really? I was going to be a real estate lawyer. Sure as the sun shines. That was the reason I went to law school, to become a real estate lawyer. That would have been such a waste of your talent. That's funny, but... It didn't happen. So I, it's like knowing you, I was yeah, like, I can't I even see you as a real estate lawyer. Well, you know, well, I, I still feel myself in times as being able to make deals with people. Right. And make, and my father had gotten into low income housing, which was a big thing post sixties into seventies and eighties. And so he had got me inspired a little bit, you know, because there's an element of public policy. There's an element of making money and there's an element of doing a very valuable service for other people in, in that is what I was, is what I thought I was saying. So I wanted to become a real estate lawyer. So that's that's how it started. And then I applied to law school and, and took the journey and ended up going to Columbia Law School. What one for office? That's funny. I've never done it. You know, I'm truth be told, I'm an introvert. So, but Donald Payne taught me some lessons. And and Larry's back there smiling, I know. But Donald Payne was a really dedicated public servant. So at the supermarket at night, the phone calls in the morning, 24 seven, he was on with people, right? His life was not private. Wow. I always wanted to go home at night. <laughs> I was like, Yo, look, I mean, meetings all night, he would socialize. I would have to slip out at him at 11 o'clock because we'd be at a bar somewhere where everybody wanted to talk to him. And that's how we did his politicking, right? Yeah. I'd be slipping home at 11 o'clock, you know, because he would not go home. And so I never, <laughs> I never really thought that was for me. I never considered myself a true man of the people in the fashion that I saw in him. And he set a very high standard for me in so many ways. And I think that's one of the reasons I never felt I could live up to his level of dedication to being a public servant. And he taught me a long time ago, Rick, politics, a lot of people are in this for the wrong reason. This is about public service and about helping people. And you should not be doing it without having a cause to serve. Mm -hmm. I think I have the cause, but I never felt I was a real man of the people. And my education made me feel less of a man of the people, which is a strange thing, but it's the truth. 
Really? Your, so your education made you feel less of a man of the people because you had acquired such a level of education that you had gone to Ivy League schools or why is that? Well, so both in City Hall and Newark as a young man, having been the only one around at the time, this was even before Cory Booker showed up in an Ivy League school. So I got people make fun of me, you know, people, I can look back at it, right? And I, you may not notice, but I'm relatively light. So I had that issue to talk about with people as well as the education. So I think, and then law school just exacerbated that and that you're dealing with, you know, it took a lot of intellectual effort and you're dealing with a interesting world. Uh, going to law school exposed me to Wall Street. I worked in, I worked on in a Wall Street law firm, both my, as a summer associate, my second year and after law school. And those experiences do, did not make me feel like I was a man of the people because I wasn't moving around in the places I used to move around as much anymore. I can look back at question that judgment, but that's the true answer for me. I mean, I don't ask the question in judgment, more me just being curious. So tell me about your work at this Wall Street firm. What were you doing? Your profit of wood. I was doing mortgage-backed securities. So my step away from real estate law, it was like real estate finance, right? So they would take either pools of mortgage loans, either big commercial mortgage loans or smaller residential loans and put them into these pools and sell ownership interest. So, you know, like they were securities and it was a hot topic, this, you know, this leveraged financing and it was hot stuff. And uh, the firm was growing and growing and there was not enough of this to do. And Merrill Lynch Mortgage Capital was my client that I worked on with a partner who was a Mormon. And it was a fabulous intellectual experience, but I was, I was the second black lawyer of 150 lawyers at the firm. And uh, I was a Columbia Law School graduate with lots of Brooklyn and Fordham Law School graduates and some other schools around. And it, and it, was, a, it was an interesting but awkward experience. And I was told by somebody, you know, I was told I was arrogant. I'm like, I'm wasting, I'm working on Wall Street and you're calling me arrogant? Yeah, but you I'm went never- to Ivy League, you went to Columbia and they went to Brooklyn. Yeah, but there's a lot of things you call me. I just rarely people call me arrogant. And and the capital of arrogance called me arrogance. I call me arrogant. I still I still remember it. So it was a it was a growing experience. I was not ready for that world at 28 years old. The compromises that were demanded of me, the going along to get along that was required of me, the sense that you don't know your place, a comment that follows me in my life, my professional career. It was it was a great learning experience. There's uh, there's no substitute for the for the intellectual training I got, but it was just not for me. So you just said that a comment that has followed you through your career is you don't know your place. Did yeah. you just say that? I did say it. What exactly is supposed to be your place? Well, that's a very good question, and I think in my per- so first off I can't give the other side of the perspective right so I won't be totally unfair to those who have irritated me but there is no question in my mind that there is a hesitance among too many Americans to see talent and leadership and willingness to follow someone with dark skin and that frequently it's your skin color that sets your place in the older world that we are still trying to emerge from and that a lot of people don't think that you may get that education, but that doesn't mean that you are not who you are either. And so that that issue has not escaped me in my in my professional career, in my own judgment. 
I don't think I'm alone either, but it, but it's just something I'm quite aware of. And I still react to it very poorly when people show me that's what's on their mind. How do you work through that, though? Because, I mean, you're, you still have seen, I think, tremendous success in your career by many accounts. So how are you able to kind of get pushed through that anger um, and keep it moving? Um, Beware the mask that grins and lies. Oh, go on and love that poem. So I think it's, it's a survival skill. You grew up in a family, I guessing that had some North Carolina, Virginia roots. So you learn, you listen to older relatives talk about passing and talk about navigating the world of segregation. And you grow up in a world hearing from the older people before you understand it, that you gotta be careful. You gotta learn to navigate this world, right? So I can think about that training from my older relatives, right? My family, my mother's family comes from Northampton County, North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's just my story, kind of rural North Carolina, very light, right? I am, I am darker than most of my mother's family, right? But still African-American without a doubt, both culturally, spiritually, but their skin color is still very light, a experience which you're familiar with, some people aren't exactly familiar with. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you, you navigate and you, and you got parents, I'm lucky to have parents who are, you know, my father was a force in my life who teach you the price you gotta pay to accomplish your goals. And navigating that color line in, in America, it's been something that's taken quite a bit of time and quite a bit of effort. I'll never forget a later part of my life when I was a consultant, working for a client, telling my father's story, but he told a joke and the punchline for the joke was, you can take the nigger out of Nork, but you can't take Nork out of the nigger. Wait, he said this out loud? No, he's telling to me, he's telling me the joke. And that was the punchline because he was the man and I was a consultant. And my father was like, you did not react to him, did you? I'll never forget my father saying that to me because you're at work. You have to navigate this world, right? So I, I put that in there and that, you know, there's, I see it's the expectations of my family that helps you navigate those things, that makes you understand that that's a part of what you've got to experience and that you have got yeah. to figure it out yourself, but you cannot simply allow anger to cause you to react. Yeah. So, sorry, but it's definitely, those pieces are definitely, that'll work. Wow. That's a lot. And I did. I didn't laugh at the joke for those who are listening. I would hope not. But you also didn't, you know, there wasn't a beatdown that ensued. You just kind of heard it and. Still amazed. I was amazed he said it. But, you know, that sentiment is not as rare as one would like it to be in our country. And I I work, I've learned a lot from politics and I've learned a lot about a lot of different communities and New Jersey's diversity gives you exposure to lots of different ethnic enclaves. And it's a good education to have. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about New Jersey politics, my friend, my politician friend. You leave Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You're in Newark. I become the district director for Congressman Donald Payne. And that means what? What does that mean, your job oh, that, is? It, mean, it meant a world of experience. First off, the first African-American ever to rise to Congress in the history of the state of New Jersey. So the man had something special and he didn't get there the easy way. He got there the hard way, number one. So what it meant was he was now a source of authority for African-Americans across the state of New Jersey. 
and everybody wanted to talk to him. And one of the most alarming things we first dealt with was the African-American employees in the U.S. Attorney's Office want us to investigate the U.S. Attorney because they're discriminating against Black people. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> okay, well, right off the bat, let's get started. Oh, great. It was an interesting experience in that the U.S. Attorney at the time was Michael Chertoff. He's a very powerful and important man today. His first assistant was a gentleman who I who I've become longtime friends with. It was an interesting encounter, and it's a it and you know and that was just one high profile example. But we got hundreds of those things, and you you know in getting to the including about public service enterprise group, the company I work for now, and it's you know getting to the truth is always an issue. It's you know there's the he said she said type of parts of it, but people felt the the person I trained is now my boss. They refused to acknowledge my contributions. You know, I got fired first. You know, just endless stories of unhappiness, feeling mistreated. You can't say they're all true, but it's, I'll be damned if you could say they're all false also. Yeah. And so that was one of many experiences. But I also learned the importance of the federal bureaucracy in New Jersey. I learned even more than I learned working for a city councilman about the importance of politics. I feel very well schooled in machine politics and I see the virtues in it as well as the challenges in it. And I, I and like I said, I've learned a lot about New Jersey. And New Jersey is a very different place today than it was when I first started in the mid 80s. But politics is a tough game and politics is a reflection of real sentiments, real opinions on real issues. There are still communities today that you, you know, we were not welcome into and that Donald Payne would be welcomed into as an exception, but generally speaking, we were not welcome. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I could go on and on, but yes, yeah, so I learned lots and lots of stories about New Jersey politics. So tell, because I'm not familiar with the phrase machine politics. Tell me what you mean by that. I and mean, then give me like an example of. Well, machine politics, the famous machine is Tammany Hall, right? Okay. Tammany Hall has a notorious bad reputation as being a center of corruption in a place where you know, politics was this game of money for, 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 for favors. But there's another side of Tammany Hall also, machine politics. Tammany Hall was also the place where immigrants, primarily Irish at the beginning, found their political voice. And Tammany Hall was the place where some parts of making public policy to help those who've been, you know, sort of, you know, left behind are, are you know, or, you know, had their origin. And at the end of the day, the greatest contribution of machine politics in Tammany Hall was, Tammany Hall was the model for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the idea of helping those who were unemployed and helping those making sure that jobs were safe and that people were paid a decent wage and that people had some basic safety net so that their lives were not you know, in endless misery. And that was all about machine politics, which were formed to give the voice to the voiceless, to give a chance mm. to to those who didn't have money, who lived in the cities, who were not wasps, but were maybe Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants or German immigrants, or you know later on, you know even at times African Americans got to you know the benefit from machine politics, you know, as our right to vote was secured. So machines were a way to help organize people, and machine politics didn't only exist on election day. A machine politics existed all along the year to help people solve their problems, to help elect people to give a voice to those in their community, and to give communities the chance to fight back against those who would take advantage of them. 
think that's the simplest way to put it, but machine politics to me is a something to be proud of. And so talk talk to me about what kind of you you're working for Congressman Plain. He's the first African American to let be elected to Congress in New Jersey's history. Nineteen eighty um, what? Nineteen eighty eight. So how did how was he able to navigate this idea? And I'm sure it came up of being um, a, the member of Congress who represents his district in its entirety with all the diversity of that district, and I'm sure there was some, as yes. opposed to being um, the black man's congressman who should be doing what it is required. And, and, and is it both of those things, one of those things? Like, talk to me about what you learned from how Congressman Payne was able to do that, because he served for a very, very long time. First of all, it didn't come easy. So yes, so Donald Payne was the, uh, the first African-American congressman, he had a base, number one, the South Ward of Newark, which come hell or high water would stick with him. It was the largest voting ward in the city of Newark. But Donald Payne got elected in a district that was drawn because of the Voting Rights Act, right? So I'm here today in part because of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act made it possible to draw a district that could elect an African-American because unfortunately, the voters were not prepared to elect someone who was African-American unless a majority of those voters were African-American, right? So it wasn't about qualifications and merit. It was about your identification also. That was a part of this. And Peter Rodino, his predecessor, did the same thing when the district went from Irish to Italian. That was you know, 30 years before Don Payne arrived on the scene. That's how it worked. So, so that's number one. And number two, Don Payne was a very unique man in that he built broad relationships inside the Democratic Party. It took a lot of heat from a lot of people in our community, African-American community, about being inside the Democratic Party versus being on the outside. Um, and that uh, was personified in many ways by his relationship with Amiri Baraka at that time. He, he worked hard at it. He was a mild-mannered man. It, he didn't... Uh, he didn't uh, do splashy or overly aggressive things. He was determined and methodical about building his strength and about having the voice of our community heard. Nobody ever once thought Donald Payne was betraying the, the interests of his own community. And so it was a very complicated story. That's one of those ones we'd have to talk about in some detail, but he, you know, the reason he got elected to Congress was that the Democratic Party was able to embrace him. They thought that they, they came to believe that he would be a great leader that he would still be loyal to the party, but also bring, you know, make the party stronger by having African-Americans be, be represented. So it was a very important journey and it took him years. When he was elected, Congressman Donald had been previously president of the YMCA, the world YMCA, and chairman of their refugee committee for years. So he had a global perspective, which he, which is one of the things he left with me. And he traveled the whole world. And I, I'm, I'm about, 25% there on what he accomplished, you know, maybe I'm, I'm working on 25%. <laughs> and, you know, his, his specialty, he was chairman of the Africa subcommittee in the house at one time, his specialty was Africa. In fact, I just had lunch with a man today who told me he was in a museum in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. When he walked in, guess what he saw? A big portrait of Donald Payne. And I feel very comfortable. Nobody's going to come back and contradict me. 
no, that's a joke. But no, but you know, but Don Payne made his name in Africa in ways that you know I, I experienced some of it personally when I traveled to Africa, and I could use his name, and people would take me to lunch, and people knew Don Payne. It was really remarkable what he accomplished. But he was also a very local politician, and for years he suffered the, the, uh, the, the curse of being unappreciated locally. Never seemed like he was smart enough, big enough, good enough for a lot of people around here. But it, you know, but over the years his strength built. And he was never a popular party guy, but he was popular with people. And that's why Don Payne kept winning. The party leaders didn't always want Don Payne, but the voters would keep voting for him. So they came to, you know, they came around to support him. And so is that, was that experience which you expected or what was different about that experience when you thought, when you were in school at Brown that you wanted to get into politics or work in politics? Well, between City Hall and that, it was much more than I could have ever dreamed. It, it, it opened my eyes in so many ways to how politics are actually practiced, towards how uh, the political system actually works, towards how people are actually motivated and how these communities are organized. You learn a lot about different communities. You learn a lot about New Jersey. And then I'm a student of politics, too, so I tried to study it to actually learn it. And he was a tough teacher, you know, because he understood the role and importance of district leaders. He understood the role and importance of, you know, of, of, of municipal and county party chairs, but he also understood the importance of the chairman of the House Ways, Committee, Ways and Means Committee, the Speaker of the House, the, uh, you know, head of the UN, as well as, you know, how legislative processes would work in different African countries. So, so he really taught me a lot. And uh, it all starts with local politics and understanding how this system is organized and, and what are the forces pushing on it and then who are the people in politics. He really taught me, you really have to learn the landscape you're working in order to understand it. And he was good at it. He was a district leader as a little kid. He was an Essex County freeholder, a county legislator. He was, as I told you, the ward chairman for the South Ward of Newark. He was a city councilman and he became a congressman. He had allies who served in the state legislature. He had governors who wanted to meet with him, right? You know, he was never, he had to dodge mayors. He had the first dodge mayor Gibson and then he had to dodge mayor James. You know, the mayors never wanted to see Don Payne get any stronger. But he was, uh, and it's funny, it just brought me back. When he first ran for city council in 1982, I'm, you know, home from college not long. And the entire incumbent city council and the mayor were all against him for South Ward Councilman. I was like, how come everybody's against us? Yeah, <laughs> but I now understood he was a threat to what people thought was their, their status quo. Okay. So let, I mean, so you, you're in, like you're working in politics in a very big way, the way that we would traditionally think about it because you're working for a member of Congress. Um, but then you move into a corporate arena. Oh, Two, right. steps, two steps in between. Tell me the two steps. Well, first, I became the, I am the first African-American executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party. So that was 1996. That was a part of an effort, a statewide effort by, it was called the African-American Alliance, right? Political Alliance of political leaders getting together, starting with Donald Payne and, and assemblyman at the time, John Watson, the father of the Congresswoman, just like the Mm -hmm. Congressman up here is the son of a congressman. Mm -hmm. And uh, they organized 
African-American politics around the state because the Democratic Party was not being very inclusive. They depended on the votes of African-Americans, but they didn't give them an opportunity to either enjoy the business of politics or to have their voices or, or to be represented in leadership positions. And we organized, we began to speak on it. In 1996, we were successful in several things. And one of them was getting me to become the first African-American executive director of the Democratic Party, which I spent three years. The job, the job title was a very simple one taught to me by a former state chairman, to elect Democrats to office is your job. And that's what I spent three years doing, can, you know, campaign world, and that was quite a learning. And then I had enough of that. Bill Bradley was running for president. I, I, I dealt with shenanigans, the power struggles, people trying to get me fired, you know, people not respecting my authority, people not seeing this future of African-American voter bloc being great for the Democratic Party. They saw us as a threat. And it really taught me a lot about race relations as well as, as power in New Jersey. And so I left. I joined with the executive director of the Republican Party and became a lobbyist in Trenton. So I want to talk a little bit, though, about your your um, your experience working for the the state Democratic Committee. Yeah, about that. Yes. Executive director. And so how and you're saying this is 1996. More than 20 years ago. Clinton, Bill Clinton was running for right. the election. Yes, and we had a United States senator named Bob Torricelli on the ballot that year. I remember Robert Torricelli. <laughs> remember those commercials. So what's interesting to me is because something you just said is that even back then, you're trying to convince them that African-Americans are an important voting block um, for the Democratic Party. Uh, well, I guess if they, you know, fast forward 25 years, we now know that that was... I'm pretty sure our president-elect, Mr. Biden, would say absolutely, were it not for this voting block. But you also mentioned, right, that that they moved you in this role to work to have someone like you when you were in that role as executive director, um, because there seemed to be still this this no representation of Black folks in the DNC who can make decisions, right? Um, and so. What do you think about the fact that all these years later, we still seem to be having the same type of relationship between African-Americans and the, and, and the Democratic Party in this country? Well, a couple of things. So I'll add one little fact difference. So when I arrived at the state committee in 96, what I discovered was the political director at the DNC was a disciple of Jesse Jackson and his two presidential runs. And that we had for the first time begun to institutionalize ourselves a little bit in the process so I had a partner at the DNC who wanted to see me successful. And that was one of the things that helped me. And in New Jersey in 96, we ran for the first time something which is now gospel called the Base Vote Program. A, a program, Base Vote, a program to turn out the Democratic base, in this case, the African-American Democratic base, to in order to help the Democrats win the, you know, win. And the trick was, the unspoken trick, which for some reason it's unspoken is, to turn out African-American voters without turning off white voters at the same time. A trick which is very difficult because this presidential election has shown us because the act of empowering African-Americans in fact turns off a lot of white voters. And a lot of democratic politicians who are white understand that they just aren't comfortable talking about it. So trying to find the formula where you can bring back uh, black voters to the polls 
uh, without chasing away your share of the white vote, which is still the largest majority, you know, the largest voting block in the electorate, is the challenge. It's a very, very difficult challenge. And it, it takes a PhD or it takes a rocket scientist to figure it out. Bill Clinton figured it out, fair or foul. Some of it was symbolic with Bill Clinton, but some of it was real. Black voters love Bill Clinton. He seemed to care about us. But he also had Tawana Brawley and welfare reform in the crime bill, right? That's Bill Clinton. That's the kind of balance they had to have because our country was still the country of Ronald Reagan at the heart, but he needed the black vote to win. And Bill, and Bill Clinton never got 50% of the votes. So what does it say about us as a country mm-hmm. that this is a needle that you even have to thread? That the empowerment of the African-American vote and, and empowering more African-Americans and more black people to vote um, you need to be able to do that at the same time, ensuring that white voters are okay with this idea that more African-Americans are going to vote. Like, what do, what do you think that says to us overall as a society that those are choices? Why, why, why are those choices? Because you would expect in a democracy that those two things should be able to exist. So a wise guy said, where you been, Paula? So you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I'm making a joke about it. So today... Uh, we have a man who spoke the words of George Wallace, get almost 74 million Americans to vote for him in 2020. There is without a doubt, and I think Barack Obama has touched on it in his book, but it needs to be touched on even more, a amazing reaction to that man being in the White House by a lot of Americans. And I don't think we grasp the depth of the reaction because we're not one of the people reacting to it but the willingness to stand by a man who doesn't have to tell him the truth, who doesn't have to play by the rules. And I'll say again, who preaches a gospel, really of George Wallace, that you can have no illusions that most people of color, certainly African-Americans can embrace, is, is really a sign of our, of our situation. Um, I saw that show, I think it was, jeez, uh, I can't think of the name of the show, but it was uh, Newt Gingrich made a comment, and I rarely quote him. It's an objective fact that most white Americans have no idea what it means to be black in America. And I think I would add to that, a whole lot don't care. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really unfortunate. And it goes back to the earliest conversation we talked about in this conversation, you know, in terms of uh, you know, what is good and what's bad, that there are a lot of Americans, and I know many of them, who think that the police need to act like that so that their neighborhood can be safe to protect them from us. There are many Americans who see, uh, you know, you drive down Freeling Heisen Avenue in Newark at the wrong time of day and see people, and they actually think it's because of the color of their skin that they behave like this, not their socioeconomic situation, not their specific circumstances, not their lack of opportunity. It's their skin color. And so as long as we have that thinking, which we are going to have for some period of time, 2020 has proven that to us, we are going to have to deal with this in a democracy. There are ways, obviously, Joe Biden, the other candidate, did get 80 million votes while I lament the man who got 74. So there is an America out there that's waiting for a new day to dawn. But our past is not a pretty past. You know, we haven't talked about American history much, but our past is not a light past. My experience with Don Payne and working in politics was 
politics for you as an African-American is about empowerment. It's about creating opportunity. It's about making your country better by making it more just, by having it live up to its promises. That is a mission that is more than a lifetime of a mission. But our country has a, has a, has a past that's full of problems like this, and we have yet to fully emerge from them, or we would not have seen 2020 play out the way 2020 played out. And the polls have been very clear. There are a lot of Americans who do not believe that policing needs to change as a result of what we've seen in 2020. And so that means, you know, you need to drive slow when you drive through Nutley, for yeah. instance. Yeah. So business. I might it's, even suggest, you know, going back to your kind of when you where we started, when you talked about just the uh, I'll describe it this way. Um, the a the accurate telling of our history. Yes, ma'am. Right, or the inaccurate telling yeah. of our history, which probably feeds into why maybe 74 million Americans don't think that policing is a problem, right? Because we've all, many of us have been indoctrinated into some ideas that actually just are not true, period. If you, if you think about how we learn about black people very broadly in this country. 1000%, and that is yeah. a big part of the problem because with that attitude goes, yes, the feeling that this country needs to be, it's Judeo-Christian ethic it's got to be saved from those people changing it, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of code talk. But they yeah. believe that this country was made what it is only by white Americans. And that this is going to change it, that people like you involved, not understanding that, you know, when George Washington took over the Continental Army, I think it was one in 10 of his soldiers were, were black. That in fact, from the very beginning of the foundation of this country, there's been a role for people like us. Yeah. The people... If you don't know it, you can believe just the opposite. This country has been only, only great things have been done by white Americans. Yeah. I was at a, a Black History Month event, obviously this early in the year in February, where one of the speakers was talking about Crispus Attucks. And I was startled by how of a room of maybe 125 people, 100 of them had never heard of Crispus Attucks before. And I remember thinking, geez, that was the first person I learned about when we studied the Revolutionary War. The first person you learned about was Christmas Ag. And to be in a room of highly educated people who in their adult lives, middle-aged adult lives, this was the first time they had heard this gentleman's name. Power of public education, yes. The power of public education, exactly right. There's something to be said for public education. Um, Ladies so we so we're in this moment now, right? We're we're in this moment, um, and and so I do want to go back to this question though, because politics, I think, probably exist in lots of areas of our lives that we would never consider. And certainly, when I started working, and, and you know, I would always hear like the comments about, well, that's just politics and company politics, and I, who cares about company politics or this, that, and the other, and I, my my belief is that we all engage in politics and maybe don't necessarily know that that's what we're doing. As my father, what do you think? And my father, he would say, and he'd speak in front of groups. If you're married, you're in politics. Explain we're all that. In politics. <laughs> politics. Well, if you're married, I don't have to explain it. <laughs> well, right no, 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 no. Well, you're married, so you explain <laughs> it. I'm making a joke. 
<laughs> you have to compromise with your spouse. Yeah. It's not about who wins the fight. It's about how you build a bridge. It's how you make a relationship, how you do give and take, how you sometimes back off so that the other person can win, how sometimes you need the other person to back off so that you can win. Some things mean more to you than your spouse. Some things more mean more to her than you. So those things, I mean, those are the basics of it. It's about human interaction. If you put groups of people together, politics is a part of it. Politics is in business, it's in sports, it's everywhere where there are people. And it's got a bad name, and that's courtesy of Richard Nixon to me. That generation is just, you know, it's just given politics a bad name to me. And I'm a Donald Payne disciple. Politics can be a very honorable thing to do. It can be about public service. It can be about serving your community, about how you make important issues work. And then there's the Harry Truman quote about politics. I'm proud to be a politician because it takes a politician to run a government. And that's a very simple, straightforward statement, but he's right. It takes a politician to run a government. And if you're not a politician and you run a government, you're gonna have some challenges because if you're not willing to compromise and represent the views of different people and only do what you think is right. Well, Paula, that's great. You think it's right, but I don't. And I want you to hear me, right? And but I'm in vote. charge. Yeah, but I got a vote too, right? So <laughs> it doesn't work. So politics can be a very honorable profession, but like all professions, there's a lot of people who abuse it, who use it for the wrong purposes, who don't honor it. They take advantage of it. And, uh, and it, it's got a bad name with a lot of people. And I'm amazed at how many people say they don't wanna be involved in politics. It's amazing to me. But if you're married, you're in politics. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you're in relationships with people, you're probably in politics. In politics. If in healthy relationships with people, yes. maybe we'll say healthy relationships. I'm add that. Yeah. If you're not in politics, you're not having many friends. I don't think. Right. <laughs> so then tell me about how what you've learned being in politics and how you've been able to apply that for the people that you're working with in a corporate setting. Ooh. So that's a PhD course on my lessons in 2020 and being in corporate America, because politics matter, and I'm, I'm in the right job, and that politics matters a lot for a regulated utility, and that we're in 3 million households in New Jersey, which means we're on streets, we're, we're hyper-local, that we're in homes and neighborhoods, but we're also fighting climate change at the national level, right? So mm -hmm. we have a, lots of politics, um, and we have... <laughs> And I work with lots of engineers and finance people. So they didn't get where they are by being out and about by me, by getting to know communities and listening to other people. They got where they are by working their jobs and sharpening their own craft in their own way. So they have their skill set. And I, I'm, I think I should admire that, but it's a different skill set than mine. And they, we frequently are, fight over values. And I find that uh, the biggest fight is a very simple fight. The status quo is not acceptable to me and you cannot identify me with protecting the status quo. I won't have it. That's what they want. They want the status quo to remain. That's what's got them where they are. That's what's made them successful. So we have that fight. So then politics is a big deal. Politics is about power. It's about understanding communities. But as a lobbyist as part of my job, politics taught me the business of politics how the game works, what are the motivations for the people I'm dealing with, how did they get to where they are, who are the people you need to talk to in order to get your decision formally approved, what is it going to take to get this done, and then who are these people, where did they come from, and then do you know people they know, because just like anything, 
it's easier to listen to me if you know me. Oh, yeah, I like Rick, so I, I can give him a chance. But if I don't know you, how do I know you're telling me the truth? How do I know you're not lying? How do you know you're not tricking me? I don't know. So you need to know the person you're engaged with on very complicated and important topics. And I bring that to the table because I spent so many hours and nights on the streets. And that's something you can't replace. You can't become friends for 20 years overnight. You can't do it. I can't know you as a kid overnight because I'm important and I can spend money on you. It doesn't work that way. So politics is an important part of the energy business. Um, I will dare to go into Ohio and Illinois that corporate politics and the resources that come with it can be some people's substitute for actually navigating the public policy game. And in this world, the politics of money and the rules changing and get you in a lot of trouble. So it's very important how you do this. It's very important that you not substitute knowledge or substitute money for knowledge in politics. And it's very important that, and the hardest part is getting the people inside the building to have to understand they have to compromise with the people in power outside the building who may not be as analytically in tune with the things they're dealing with, but, it, but they're, they're concerned with what they're concerned about. So you gotta be concerned with what people are concerned about if you want them to be concerned with what you're concerned about, right? That's called politics too. And those are tricky things to work on because that's not apparently first nature in corporate America. Corporation has an agenda and it wants to execute the agenda and things that get in the way are distractions or obstacles, not necessarily opportunities. So it's an ongoing challenge to try to bring these skills into corporate America. It takes me to have to develop personal respect with these other leaders, which the job is, is well underway at least. And it also takes the ability to teach people, but sometimes they don't want to hear it. And then 2020 put on the table loud and clear social justice. Well, I think we do need to make some improvements in our social justice. Yeah. I think law school taught me, and I had a law professor talk about whether Brown versus Board of Education was constitutional. I wish I could go back to that class right now and have that teacher say that to me again. And I also know that the Supreme Court building says equal justice under law on it. United States Supreme Court building, yeah. equal justice under law. Equal justice was not what George Floyd got. Then the question would be, was that just one man doing it to him? Or was that something part of a bigger pattern problem or system that caused that to happen? And if you think it is part of that bigger system, what do you want to, what are you willing to do to have that system administer equal justice? And I see that being short circuited by people like, well, I don't need your friends in Newark coming to my neighborhood, Rick. I need the police to keep them away. So very heavy stuff, very heavy stuff and stuff that can easily get in the way of cooperation on, on rate case discussions or the ability to get regulatory approval for the new business agenda item. Those things for someone like me are not as important as human rights and social justice. But we've had some discussions. Some people made the comment, man, you spend time thinking about things I don't even have to think about. I've never put any effort into them. They're not even a part of my life, Rick. I can't imagine what my life would be if I had to worry about all that stuff you worry about. Yeah. Yeah, God bless them, right? Yeah. I wish I could say that. Well, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of Black people who wish they could say that. <laughs> yeah, God bless um, Those heavy stuff, right? And then there is who are you responsible for in this position? So now I'm the highest ranking African-American in the history of public service, right? Something which my dear departed grandmother would be internally proud of me. 
But what is my obligation now that I'm in this job? And it's a work in progress is the honest truth. Sometimes maybe I've reacted in ways that irritate my colleagues. I'd be willing to apologize for it, but these are real issues, politics. And I believe I have a vision of success for the corporation in the future that includes respecting its customers. That's not an offensive vision for a business, is it? No. To bring your customers closer to achieve success, right? With my customers in, in the service territory in New Jersey comes a broad spectrum of diversity. And mastering that is not for the faint at heart and it's not easy to do. But it's a job that the shareholders will reward you for if you do it well. Yeah. So I'm better at that than I am at the accounting missions that we have and the engineering missions we have. And trying to have room for both of those in a corporation is sometimes hard for people. Yeah. So you you started by you well you didn't start but you one of the things that you said about being in a corporation is that the fight sometimes is over values. Yes, ma'am. We're fighting over values. Yes, and so I, I'm I'm real interested in what are the competing values? What what are these values that we're disagreeing so much on? that it would impact the way that we work within our business? Well, let's start with personnel. We all want a meritocracy and people like to believe there's a meritocracy. And I've said it and it didn't go over well. You can't fill a building full of only white people and call it a meritocracy. You can't yeah. do it. I would suggest we haven't gotten to meritocracy yet. Some people, and some people call my attitude fighting words, right? Okay. So, so there's that first off. Um, and you know, what's meritocracy? No, that's called discrimination, right? And then there's this word out there, equity. Everybody hears about it today. So do you mean that you embrace equity because you recognize inequality of the past that you want to correct for? No, but equity is a kinder, gentler way to talk about the future. We all recognize that the only stable place to plant your flag in battle is on equal rights, everybody being treated equally. But we also, many of us know that if you just snap the tape right now and say, okay, we treat everybody equally, that's not fair, right? Well, didn't we do that already? <laughs> You're right. Didn't okay. we do the equal thing? That's why we're having an equity conversation because the equal thing didn't work? Well, maybe. There's all kinds of perspectives on that, right? What's some... your perspective? I'm curious. Well, my perspective is equity is the ticket to future prosperity and the ticket to achieving greatness in a country that is demographically diverse. Whether you like it or not, it is what it is and you can't get rid of people who look like you. I may not like you at all, Paula, but I can't send you to Liberia. Those days are over, right? I'm or not from Liberia. You're right. Oh, damn it. Wrong one, right. Wrong country. We can't get rid of you, right? Our future is to compete in a global economy, which whether we like it or not is where we're heading, is on, is on achievement, is on success, on excellence. And we need you to get educated, to get smart, to make your contribution and to have your seat at the table. Not to have you on the street angry because you're broke and poor and can't get a job and then you want to commit a crime and then I got to spend more money on you. You who commit a crime that I'd spend on Rick's kid who wants to go to Princeton, right? I got more public resources for me or for you to put your kid in prison than I could to get my kid into Princeton, right? So we got to invest in our people, right? The new, the new catchy title is human capital management. We need to invest in our people. 
but I'm an ex I'm an ex I'm an example. You can't put me in power and expect me to sustain the status quo. I'm not doing it. Well, now, well, that forces choices. I'm not doing it, right? And that's not disrespectful. That is, there's a better way than this way of discrimination and keeping people in place and having, you know, and having a aristocracy of different types. There's a better way, right? But it means change and it means creating opportunity for people who previously didn't have opportunity. And in theory, we're all going to make more money and be more prosperous by achieving that goal, not a zero sum game. You get a job, that means my cousin can't have a job, which is what I hear mostly from people, from people, right? So it's it's a it, it, it's a very important subject. What is your vision of the future? You know, people accuse me of wanting change, but I actually have discovered that our I have I work with leaders who are enforcing a status quo with great effort and vigor. It takes a lot of work to enforce the status quo. It's not automatic. It's not by accident. It doesn't happen because nobody's paying attention. Mm -hmm. It happens for exactly the opposite reasons because we're paying very close attention. We are creating a world in which we are sanctioning. And that is a that's serious business. Now, who are you to come in here and change things? Yeah. I heard Roland Mar Martin say in an interview this summer, um, when they were asking him about the protests, he said, we just want the country to be who we say we are on paper. If we just, just do what you say you're doing on paper, is that a little bit about what, what I mean, I, I would say, even as we think about our companies and our DEI initiatives that we have, continue to have, will have, at the end of the day, sometimes what we want our companies to do and be is who we say we are. So there's two sides to it, right? Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural talked about equal rights eloquently. Mm. Didn't believe it. He was not only a slaveholder and the father of children who he enslaved, Mm-hmm. But he was the political leader of the plantation aristocracy from 1796, really through the election of 1820. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson's political coalition captured every state that was a slave state, really. He was their leader, political leader. They trusted him with their political destiny, and he never betrayed them. But he spoke eloquently about equal rights, and he was an incredibly talented individual that history handicaps him because of that. He could not see beyond it. So our country has always talked about it. And our country has achieved so many great things and continues to reinvent itself, even in the midst of all the human misery, agony, oppression, and injustice that we have also experienced at the same time. So what is the lesson? Is it just to be what we said we're going to be? I have an extra lesson in there too. You can't recreate the past without recreating a state arm of violence to enforce it. Mm. And are we really ready? I don't think this country is genuinely ready for the level of violence it took to enforce the the order that was established in the past. And nobody should forget. And when you say order established in the past, you're talking slavery, Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking far beyond that. I'm talking, right? So in 1965, when they passed the Voting Rights Act, for the sake of argument, less than 5% of Black voters in Mississippi were registered. Yeah. That wasn't because they talked them out of registering. Right. That was violence. That damn bridge is still named after the former Grand Dragon of the KKK, was also a Democratic senator from the state of Alabama, yeah. Edmund Pettus. And I believe a, a officer in the Confederate Army, if I'm not mistaken as well, right? 
So that violence didn't end in Reconstruction and slavery. And, you know, the end of Reconstruction was about the Ku Klux Klan and getting people of color out of politics was done through violence. Serious extended high levels of violence that even the worst of, of the president's crowd today, I don't think would have the stomach for. But our system could no longer tolerate it. And, and it would certainly, it's not just not possible to enforce, to enforce order the way we've done in the past. And I know I got an education. Can anybody convince you now you belong in, as a second class citizen? Can anybody talk you into it now? Mm -mm. It, it's, talking's not gonna do it anymore, right? Yeah. Not to me, not to my children, not to millions millions of other people. Yeah. And so it's not just the, you know, our country has a promise we haven't fulfilled. It's actually not realistic what they're talking about. Make America great again. And what year, great. You wanna, well, what year you wanna pick? Yeah, and we can talk about that, right? So yeah, so it is. It's not realistic, and but people do hang on to those dreams of it. They do have nostalgia about a past that they feel more comfortable with, notwithstanding the place maybe some of us played in that past, and they were enabled to tolerate our president to uh, to achieve that nostalgia. It seems. And I just made those points to make the point, it's just not realistic unless you are prepared to use violence. And some are. Well, we know that 74 million people are prepared to tolerate. Well, they certainly didn't turn their back on it. There's a lot of them who say they voted for Trump who aren't. You know, I understand mm -hmm. that. But mm -hmm. there is no doubt that the threat of violence hangs, you know, it is not out of the conversation in terms of enforcing a social order. And that's, and that's something that, you know, so here I am in this job, right, in corporate America, I, I can't, you know, my same grandmother who was impressed by me, what would she think of me doing that, right? Yeah. And, you know, how much courage do I have? How much commitment do I have? And so corporate America does raise those things. And then the other side of that is, there's a brighter vision of a brighter future where people get a chance to participate and join and new ideas and innovation and different people, no matter where you come from, coming together, the melting pot, that's also part of America. And then we're gonna treat, achieve great things with that melting pot. So I, I think it's not inappropriate to pursue that vision, but it is not appropriate to act like that's our struggle for equal rights is over and equality is over. And that's unfortunate. And it's not, it's impossible for me to believe that there's a better America without those equal rights. And you know, the single greatest contribution in Rick Thigpen's world, African-Americans made to this country is the 14th Amendment to our constitution and putting the word equality into our constitution. That's a Black History Month story. Oh. That's what has made this country great. The 14th Amendment was there as sure as the sun shines. It was passed, I guess it was ratified in July of 1868. And it, you know, no state shall deny the equal protection of the laws, right? It is the basis of all things equal in our constitution. And, and you cannot pass a law today that singles out females or black or white or Irish or Italian or any of these characteristics. You got to treat people equally. And treating people equally is generally 
a signature of fairness, generally speaking. If you treat everybody equally, how unfair are you really being, right? So I, so I value it, but the 14th Amendment came, it was required of Southern states to ratify before they could join, uh, rejoin the Union. It was made as a political tool so that the Republican Party could also win the 1868 presidential election once they brought these Confederate states, these former states that had waged war against their country back into the Union. And they were concerned that the security of the Union against people who had just waged war against it and are now going to get a right to vote, they're going to elect people who are going to be supportive of, the, of those who are in favor of secession, of the enemy just defeated. And they decided, and it proved to be true in the 1868 presidential election, that it was Black voters giving citizenship rights to African Americans with both how they reconstructed the South. That's how Ulysses Grant won the 1868 presidential election, is with Black votes. And it wouldn't have happened but for the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment not only is used to save our country and put it back together as a republic, it was also, you know, it, it was using African-Americans as a weapon to put the country back together in a way that it would no longer be a threat to national security. And we went to war, World War I, Woodrow Wilson, you know what it was about? Freedom. Yeah. We are so proud of this country, stand for freedom in the world. We changed the world in the name of freedom. And that to me, and we are the beacon in the world for freedom because of the 14th Amendment, because this country, unlike almost any other in the world, the first in the world, requires, even though we haven't lived up to the promise, to treat people equally under law, equal justice under law, the highest aspirations of American jurisprudence. That's what's on the, the walls of the Supreme Court. And that's a Black History Month story. We did that for this country. The North would not have won this war without black soldiers. We saved our country. We helped put it back together as a more democratic country than it was before the war. It is the biggest gift that millions and millions and millions of Americans have experienced for over 150 years. And it's almost like most people don't know we get credit for it. That's because most people I, don't. Yeah, I it's one reason I love history because I'm proud of my history. I'm proud of what my people have done for this country. And you have to learn that over the noise being thrown at you, that slave, 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 right? So having said that, if you believe you have a purpose, if you believe your mission is a good one, is it your job to back down to those who are wrong because they have power? And that's a very soul searching, delicate conversation. We all wanna be successful. We all wanna make a living but we all want to be, have a purpose. And I want my daughter to look me in the eyes one day, say she's hopefully proud of her father's behavior, but it's a very challenging uh, thing to navigate. And I am constantly trying to get better at it because my corporation needs someone like me and its future success is gonna be about embracing people like me more and more in the future because our customers are majority non-white. And so it's about success. So there's a purpose for me. I believe in it, but you better be ready to take your whip in too. And that's part of the part of the journey and part of the lessons I'm learning. And if I can do it right, I can do a lot of good. Yes. I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said. 
but that I'm prepared to take my whooping and it sounds like you're prepared to take yours. You don't want it. I guess. But you're prepared it, to do it. Well, you know what? I, yes, you ha- I have to be prepared to have self-esteem. I have to be prepared to be who history has given me the chance to be. Mm-hmm. I have to look, you know, my mother always had this story, you know, I'm not a religious person, but she's always talk about it. before you, you go to heaven or hell, you got to meet St. Peter. He's going to have some questions about your life and, and your answers will be, no, or his judgment of, of where you go. And we're all going to meet St. Peter one day. And you do want to be able to say you did what you thought was right. You did what you believed to be the right thing. Not just that I did what I did so I could make more money and be successful, which of course I would like to do. So it's, it's a tricky subject. And the company needs people like me. I wish I could say it needs me, right? But it needs people like this. That's what's going to make it successful in the future. But that transition, leaving the past behind, it's not going to be easy. People don't want to let it go. Yeah. They don't want to let it go. Yeah. But I I will offer this to you, Mr. Thigpen, that being successful is doing the right thing. And that if you're not doing the right thing, certainly in the way that your parents have raised you, you probably aren't really successful. Yeah, but that's different having that big house and that big car too, isn't it? Well, no, that's about having a lot of money, right? <laughs> right. And, and confusing monetary means with success. Yeah. A lot of wealthy people who may not see themselves as successful, it's how you measure it. Yes. Right? Yes. So who would have thought corporate America would bring you into a soul-searching place? It didn't seem like the place. Like, you know, as a younger man, first of all, I never could have dreamed being in corporate America, but who would have thought that it would happen? Yet it's happened. And corporate America is similarly struggling with the presence of people like myself more and more in different places. And how do how do corporations embrace this new skill set and use it for its own benefit? Mm-hmm. But it does cause conflict because some people are more conservative in their outlook on the world. And they think that and for years bringing it to work had fit in perfectly. Yeah. Now here I come trying to say, no, you can maybe better if you left that at home, right? You know, yeah. I'll say again, who are you? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I know you've heard it too. Right? Who are you? Yeah. But you know what? I think what I what I would say is in this day and time, we have more of corporate America who's interested in doing the right thing. Yes. Than the easy thing, which is status quo. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's going to be really, really hard. But I think to your point, if we really want success the way that I define it, monetary as well as doing the right thing, then this is this is the work that we do now. And I, I discover people all come with different values. It's usually widely held the desire to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But some Americans were taught this is the right thing to yeah. keep them in Newark keep them away to protect yourself from them that is the right thing and it's really it's it's a very big challenge right because uh it can it's going to prevent us from being able to take advantages of the opportunities that the future is presenting if we continue to embrace those attitudes and that's serious business 
That is serious business. Yeah, it is. And it's a, it's no little challenge. And that's one of the many lessons I've learned, but I, I feel I brought, I still believe that I'm here today in much part because of the Voting Rights Act, because of Jesse Jackson's runs for president, and that it's the empowerment of our community. I mean, let alone the 14th Amendment, which I, my grave will be trying to convince people is something they should pay more attention to, that uh, the empowerment of our community is also the way that opportunity has come. So should I abandon that formula going forward? It seems to me that's the formula. You yeah. know, the old Bear Bryant saying, right? Gotta dance with the one that brung you. And it seems to me that that, that is, is where the future is, is working with political leaders and other leaders to make business more responsive to the needs of the public as part of the way it achieves its success. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rick Thigpen. And for the rest of our Always Bet on Black episodes, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And for all things Abe, follow us on social media. You can check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, you can check us out online at www.aabe.org. Next week, we'll be talking with Ralph Cleveland, Interim CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. And remember, always bet on Black.